mushroom cloud that belched forth from the sea spread upward and outward, swallowing up the ships of the Phantom Fleet and thrusting civilization toward its own crossroads in the atomic age, the beginning of a terrible end or the dawn of a bright new era. As a kid growing up in the early 1980s, I remember the prospect of a nuclear war between Russia and the USA was real. It was something you knew could happen. There were movies about it. But then the Cold War ended and the risk of nuclear Armageddon ended with it, right? Wrong. As Russia threatens nuclear strikes against Ukraine, it's easy to forget that a number of other states have or are close to getting nuclear weapons. I'm talking about North Korea, Pakistan and Iran, a set of unstable, conflicted and increasingly authoritarian states. And here's the most extraordinary thing of all. Without the actions of A.Q. Khan, a one-man proliferation machine, none of these nuclear programs would ever have succeeded. This is Doomsday Watch. The man who blew up the world. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth, and now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. Chaos, fear, threat for all of us. My name is Kelsey Davenport. I'm the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. Uh, the Arms Control Association was founded in 1972 in order to advance effective nonproliferation and disarmament policies. And I think that nuclear risk has increased significantly over the past several years. And we're really entering a new era where we may begin to see states returning to the concept that developing nuclear weapons will enhance their security, or at least developing the capabilities to eventually pursue nuclear weapons will enhance their security. There is a real question now about whether or not the international community can successfully and effectively respond to proliferation crises. That is giving some states you know, space to think twice about whether or not they could at this point you know, pursue a nuclear weapons capability. So I absolutely think that when you have leaders who have put their egos on the line, who are not being driven by a rational conception of the consequences of nuclear war that don't grasp the escalation dynamics of engaging in certain actions, you, know, you increase the likelihood of you know, intentional nuclear use. Personalities certainly matter. Tons of water, alive with deadly rays. Awe-inspiring in its significance for man who learned how to control the atom, but must now learn to control himself. There is but one defense against the atom bomb, and that is distance. And distance will mean nothing without world peace. 
we probably need to go back to the nuclear rulebook. You see, these weapons are under a set of global controls. The Global Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, has a list of official nuclear weapon states. That's the US, Russia, the UK, France and China. It's far from perfect, but the NPT offers a measure of monitoring and regulation of these terrifying objects. More worrying are the countries that sit outside the global non-proliferation system. There's Israel, whose nukes, however controversial, sit in a very specific context. And then there's India, Pakistan, North Korea, and, still working on it, Iran. These countries are outside the NPT and argue that the treaty is a neo-colonial framework. But worryingly, it means that there is very limited external control or monitoring of any of these nuclear programmes. found the partitioning going into effect. Almost two million people had to be evacuated from one state to the other, as the partitioning line found Muslims living in the Hindu state and Hindus residing in a new Muslim state. I promised the story of the man who blew up the world. Abdul Qadir Khan was a remarkable scientist and a person whose own life story was bound up with the end of British India and the chaos of the partition of the subcontinent into India and Pakistan. Professor Hassan Abbas of the National Defence University in Washington, D.C., and author of Pakistan's Nuclear Bomb, takes up the story. Dr. A.Q. Khan, or Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan, uh, was a product of his times in so many ways. The chaos, the confusion, the tragedy, that was not a smooth or a peaceful independence, so to say. Uh, after 90 years of British rule, there was a, these freedom movements in both uh, parts of the larger part of British India, which had created this hope of a new homeland, uh, a Muslim homeland for Muslims of South Asia, as was pitched by Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founding father at that time. And they were great leaders, um, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Um, and they all meant well for their own people. But the way things turned out, uh, it was a bloodbath. The figure according to historians, is about a million people were not only killed, they were butchered. All the Hindus from South Asia started going towards what was the new India. All the Muslims or many Muslims from all over India wanted to come to what was designated as Pakistan. And when they would move into buses or trains, at times on the way, uh, they were ambushed and killed. So Abdul Qadir Khan was growing up or, or uh, was a product of those years Every Indian and Pakistani who, in the early days of the partition and after that had come through that very torturous history. Violence flared up over the partitioning in both India and Pakistan. Traditional centuries-old hatred between the two major faiths brought to a boil this dissension over the new boundaries and took a toll of countless lives. So Ikyu Khan grew up in Karachi. His family had migrated from India to Pakistan. And he, in his memoirs and in his own works, he says one of the the moments that was were etched in his mind uh, was this border crossing of sorts in this new Pakistan where someone, an Indian border guard, asked him, what do you have? And he said, I have nothing. I'm just going to Pakistan in my new country. And he said, I, I can see a pen. And he, he was into a reading and writing. And it, it was a very important uh, treasure for him. And that was taken away by that, that Coast Guard. So it was all these small things, but they had an impact on his mindset, on his worldview of looking at India as an existential threat. Fascinating. And, and 
you know, it's a long story, but if we were to take it forward to the next chapter, he was a brilliant student and became a a graduate student overseas, didn't he? Absolutely, in, in Netherlands. And um, he went abroad, educated in the best universities at that time. He was absolutely, uh, without a doubt, brilliant because uh, with, with uh, those kind of a country which is coming out of such a crisis, um, re-establishing its education system, it was hard to produce people who can go in any international standard university and do well. But he did extremely well. And, I mean, for him at that time, he got into a field which was really an asset uh, for for anyone coming from a developing nation at that time. He was into metallurgy. So he made a place for himself, got reputation as a brilliant, hardworking uh, person uh, who, who was totally dedicated to, to his education. In their last short war against India in September 65, Pakistan East and West fought as a united nation against their enemy across the border. But today, no one any longer takes that national solidarity for granted. In fact, quite the reverse. Because of Indian propaganda, because it's India that is almost recognized an independent Bangladesh nation, India is beginning to succeed here in projecting an image as the friend of the people. Michael Nicholson, News at 10, Dhaka. While he was abroad, um, I would say early 70s, when he was really uh, making a name for himself and learning all these things, that was also the time that Pakistan uh, got splintered or divided into two countries. It was the, it used to be an East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, and West Pakistan, which is today's Pakistan. And uh, because there was a thousand mile dif- distance between the two, because there was military dictatorship in Pakistan, the people of the two lands got distance uh, and there were genuine uh, reasons why Bangladeshis thought that they needed uh, a separate homeland. But the final episode of that divorce um, happened because uh, of a Pakistan-India war as well. So Pakistanis' view about the animosity that Indians have about them was further entrenched. And that's also the time that the Pakistan's security uh, officials and security establishment was looking for ways to counter India. And then got, got Pakistan got this new political leader in the shape of Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, uh, a young educated man, a great um, speaker uh, and a thinking man and a good writer as well. And he collected some of his folks, nuclear scientists and others, and he said, look, we are hearing that India is making a bomb. And the only way we can defend the future of the country is if we had the bomb. When A.Q. Khan was considering this very seriously that, okay, I'm now going back to my homeland, saving my homeland from the, from the Indians who want to destroy my country, he said, well, I have all the know-how, but I need to transfer this technology. So he started um, what can be called stealing or from his point of view, a patriotic um, effort to get his country a nuclear bomb. But he collected whatever he could, documents, other things. That was not the era where you have a phone in your hand, like an iPhone or something else. It must have been jotting down notes. It must be copying materials. He did everything and then left the country, came back to Pakistan and then started the next phase of his life. That's when around 1973-4, he wrote a letter to to the Pakistani Prime Minister uh, through the Pakistani Embassy saying, well, I have something which you might need. In this unlikely spot in rural Punjab stands a testament to the enmity between Pakistan and India. 
The monument links a battle 800 years ago to today's nuclear arms race. And this whole edifice was built by the scientist who's dedicated the last 20 years of his life to developing Pakistan's nuclear program. The first part of the A.Q. Khan story shows us the importance of understanding the wider political context. A.Q. Khan's motivation was forged in the series of wars fought between India and Pakistan. And now in 2022, with war raging in Europe, increased great power rivalry brings with it the prospect of nuclear escalation. I'm Shashank Joshi. I'm defence editor at The Economist. And earlier this summer, I wrote a cover story looking at how the war in Ukraine had increased some of the nuclear risks to the world. Ultimately, A.Q. Khan's priority remained the defence of Pakistan, even if his nuclear programme was highly controversial. And thanks to the NPT, that's tended to be the case for all nukes, framed as a last resort defensive option. But the world of nuclear strategy was upended in 2022. What Putin's Russia has been doing is to use the threat of nuclear retaliation as a shield against those that might seek to support Ukraine in a more active manner. This has clear implications for other conflicts. I think this is not great news for non-proliferation. You know, we've had situations where countries have used threatened to use nuclear weapons in a conventional conflict. Uh, Richard Nixon signalled it to the Soviets in 1969 during the Vietnam War. In the first Gulf War, George H.W. Bush, the administration hinted that they might use nukes if Saddam used biological or chemical weapons. So, you know, look, this isn't completely unknown. What is, I think, more novel is the use of nuclear weapons in this way as a kind of shield against third-party intervention, right? The Russian army has, has cocked this up in many ways, but what they have done is been able to cock it up without the Americans or NATO getting in their way because of the threat of escalation. They've wielded it successfully. Certainly, if you're China, you sort of may wonder, well, how would this dynamic work in a Taiwan contingency? Would the Biden administration be similarly fearful of escalation? Unlike Russia's increasingly virulent threats of nuclear obliteration... China's approach to its nuclear capability is shrouded in ambiguity. The truth is, almost nobody really knows what China's strategic intentions are with its nuclear weapons. But they do appear to have learnt from Russia, for example, using the threat of nuclear attack to deter support to Taiwan. And their other learning point is not to be under-equipped. China is building hundreds of new nuclear missile silos. If we look back through history, you know, states have considered developing nuclear arsenals at times, uh, not just because they felt threatened by an adversary, but because they felt like they could no longer rely on their security partners and that an independent deterrent was necessary. And you know, I would add another factor to the changing proliferation landscape that's deeply concerning. And that is the question of the strength of alliances and security guarantees. In July of 2015, a multilateral group of countries you know, resolved a decades-long nuclear crisis 
with Iran over its nuclear program. And that deal proved to be quite successful until U.S. President Donald Trump withdrew from it in in 2018 and aggressively reimposed sanctions. The Trump administration took a number of actions that called into question U.S. security guarantees. This deal with Iran, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. As Kelsey says, the currency of being in an American security alliance is severely devalued in an era when you don't know which direction Donald Trump's Republicans might be headed. I spoke to Ankit Panda from the Carnegie Programme for International Peace about this dilemma. You know, that is a problem that the Biden administration, try as it might, cannot solve for itself because our allies, every country with a treaty alliance, has seen what has happened in American domestic politics over the last five years and understands that we will have another election in 2024 and there is no guarantee that Democrats will win that election. And of course, unlike the seven decades of U.S. post-Second World War history and our foreign policy, the rift between our two parties on how they view fundamentally the notion of alliances, the greatest force multiplier for American power around the world, uh, since the end of the Second World War, uh, has, you know, it's a rift wider than the Grand Canyon at this point. I mean, the two parties have fundamentally different views on this. And so if you are in a treaty alliance with the United States and you've been sleeping well at night thinking that American nuclear weapons will be there to defend your country when necessary, uh, you probably aren't sleeping so well and you're probably watching a lot of Fox News to try and figure out where the Republican Party is heading and whether Donald Trump might win a second tr- uh, a second term. Um, and so, you know, those questions, I think, are, are indeed quite important for the national security enterprises of many of our allies. On the issue of nuclear deterrence in the Ukraine conflict, Look, I mean, the lesson that I've taken away, uh, and I'm actually surprised that, uh, you know, some analysts have walked away looking at what's happening in Ukraine with the opposite takeaway, is that nuclear deterrence is absolutely constraining the behavior of both NATO and Russia. You know, Russia is not attacking NATO supply convoys into Ukraine, despite the fact that NATO is pumping the Ukrainian armed forces with equipment that's being used to uh, maim and kill Russian soldiers. And by the same token, NATO is not establishing a no-fly zone or otherwise conducting strikes on Russian forces. It's it's a lesson that we learned during the Cold War, which was that proxy conflicts, as long as they do not directly draw the two major nuclear armed superpowers into direct conflict with each other, can be tolerably fought at tolerable levels of risk to the superpower. Russia's war in Ukraine might have been disastrous, but it's taught everybody the value of having nuclear weapons. In the end, our ability to stop Russia is severely limited by it having nukes, and by that alone. Nothing else really matters. In terms of the non-proliferation impact, the, the answer is to say, well, from a defending country's point of view, of course, you know, nukes are useful. You know, no country has suffered a war of conquest or regime change in this way, externally imposed regime change, if it's had nuclear weapons. And the lessons of Ukraine are going to feed into that debate. To me, none of this does anything good to the nuclear order. And I think it reinforces the, the sort of sense of we're talking about nuclear weapons as being much more usable in much more glib fashion than perhaps at any time since the early Reagan era. We shouldn't forget that Ukraine also briefly had nuclear weapons. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, some of the Soviet nukes got left in Ukraine, although they never had military control over them. But some have ruefully observed that if they'd not given them up, the chance of a full-scale Russian invasion would now be minimal. Such a line of thinking might well be driving Iran's dash for nukes. Tehran doesn't even have to complete a nuclear arsenal. They don't even have to build the bomb. You know, being able to do so, you know, having a nuclear program that's expanding 
you know, all of this allows Iran to move much more quickly to a nuclear weapon. So that existential threat, I think, shadows these relationships. So I think it is concerning to view weapons potential through the lens of how responsible of an actor we view a certain state to be. Because as we've seen in history, you know, regimes can change. Uh, strategic stability can be abended. Uh, so I think it is critical to look to every nuclear agreement, to look to every nuclear program, regardless of how responsible we perceive that state to be, you know, with an eye to establishing the highest nonproliferation standards. Kelsey was getting at the idea of latent nuclear power that you don't actually have to have a bomb ready to achieve a deterrent effect. You just have to have the means to put one together in a hurry. Latency is the idea that it can mean many things, but often taken to mean when you have all the know-how, the technology... Uh, the, the 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 materials the, fis- the the ability to produce fissile materials so in other words the full nuclear fuel cycle to build a nuclear weapon without actually having one and you can be at different levels of latency right so the, the classic example I think of is is sort of India or Pakistan in the 80s where they they kind of had everything they were a screwdriver turn away from the bomb it would have taken them weeks. To, to put something together, um, and then they could have, you know, stuck it onto the bottom of a plane. It wouldn't have been the best way to deliver it, but you could just about, you could just about blow something up if you really needed. Uh, Iran has done lots of work on building a warhead, lots of research. We know this. They, they say they haven't, but we know that we know it has because Mossad stole all the documents and published them. So we know that Iran did lots of work on building a nuclear warhead. It has lots of know-how. It, it you know, looked, looked at implosion dynamics to model this stuff. So, so I don't think the Iranians have made a strategic choice to totally break out and develop nuclear weapons and test a bomb. Um, but we'll stand at the threshold and we'll say, OK, uh, we're going to have a certain deterrent. That means if we ever get into a war with Israel or with the United States, um, they'll have to reckon with us building a bomb fast. Well, throughout this city, there are monuments to the work of Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan, hero of the nation, father of Pakistan's nuclear bomb. So let's go back to the AQ Khan story. Ashash Joshi just said, At that time, India and Pakistan were a screwdriver's turn away from nuclear escalation. By the 1980s, he was making significant progress in developing nuclear weapons technology. But with his brilliance came someone who refused to submit to authority. Professor Hassan Abbas takes us back to the huge challenges A.Q. Khan faced. There are letters from A.Q. Khan to Bhutto saying, look, you put me in in charge of a place, but you have put me under uh, people who are thugs and thieves and incompetent, and they are not allowing me to work. And Bhutto had to make a decision. He made a team of two or three people, of Ghulam Ishaq Khan, who later became president of Pakistan and played an important role in supporting him. Uh, He said to A.Q. Khan, look, take your small unit. I will take you away from the Pakistan Atomic Energy Commission, PAEC, you build your own institution. And it took a year or two. But once he had the independence, he became so important because the military leadership and the political leadership, who had very little idea actually about the the science involved in all this, and they had no way but to trust A.Q. Khan. But A.Q. Khan in the process, my last point on this, became too powerful. 
because he had no checks. He was a hero to everyone. I, I grew up in Pakistan in those years. Um, seeing A.Q. Khan's name was more important than the name of the head of the state or any politician or any general because everyone knew that he is the most important man in Pakistan who's making a nuclear bomb for the country which will make Pakistan safe from everything else. And of course, what you've touched on there in that last point, the, the degree to which he was sort of unchecked and, and, and maybe even out of control leads us to the next and perhaps sort of final part of this extraordinary story, which is the way in which A.Q. Khan then began to export this technology to other countries. Absolutely. And that has to do a lot with the geopolitical situation as well, and which I'll very briefly mention that. Pakistan has just coming out of the Afghan war or Afghan jihad, uh, where about 30,000 militants from all across the world were brought into Pakistan, financed by the Saudis, supported by the West, especially by the United States, because Pakistan was the front line against the former Soviet Union. They were the ones who were stopping uh, the Soviets from marching on to everywhere else from Afghanistan. And that whole process, those 30,000 militants and the jihad literature and the religious extremism, that was needed because that's how they were inspiring people to fight the Soviets. That had a deep impact on the society as well. In this process of saving the world, so to say, Pakistan got radicalized. And radicalized in a way that many of the military officers, others, started becoming overzealous, over-religious. I mean, I was growing up in Pakistan as a kid in those years, as a school student. And I even remember how religious conversations had changed. That's the same time. Now, A.Q. Khan already had the nationalism. And then he had observed in his own experience that every step he was taking was being followed by the Western intelligence agencies. He, because he had a network, he knew that when he was using his old network in Europe to get the equipment and get some of the things that he needed to make Pakistan's bomb, in which he was succeeding at a very fast speed, he had almost made the bomb by 1987-88, and A.Q. Khan was showing everything that he deserved to be trusted. And he built a parallel program. Some people think that this was a strategy Pakistan was having under General Ziaul Haq, a military dictator, who had excellent relations with the West because he was fighting uh, the West's jihad, inverted commas, against the former Soviet Union in Afghanistan. So Ziaul Haq uh, could get a pass on everything. And Ziaul Haq knew that he was facing pressure from United States saying, we see some changes. Are you making a bomb? And Ziaul Haq would always say, no, we are pursuing nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. And behind that, Ziaul Haq allowed the two parallel systems to work. He gave all the independence, power, authority, money, resources to A.Q. Khan. Ziaul Haq thought both of these will continue if there's more Western pressure. I will stop the other program, which in any case, probably in his view, was not leading to the bomb. But I will save A.Q. Khan. It's to ensure the safety of my people, to avoid future wars. I believe that my work has saved this country in the last 20 years from many wars. A.Q. Khan acquired more a different narrative which added a religious zeal to him because he said, the West is trying to stop me only because this is a Muslim country. 
the Iranian Islamic Revolution had uh, bloomed, um, and Pakistan was in a different geopolitical situation. His whole narrative, and I went through all his speeches and statements, his every second statement said, well, we are not being allowed to develop a nuclear bomb, or we are stopped, we, we face restrictions, we face res uh, sanctions, only because this is a Muslim bomb. He actually, his statements gave away the secret to some Western journalists who said, okay, he's calling it Islamic bomb again and again. Is it an Islamic bomb? Which it was not. But because the Saudis had funded, because the Libyans had funded, Bhutto had reached out to some of the Muslim countries for funding because it, it was supposed to be a secret side program. And A.Q. Khan, I would, for the lack of any other word, I would say he became a zealot in a sense. He thought um, that he had the responsibility to not only save Pakistan, but he can save the Muslim world. And that's where he went terribly wrong. Today's reports, quoting official sources, say he's confessed to passing on nuclear know-how to Libya, Iran and North Korea. That's when he found a Pakistani general, Aslam Beg, who agreed with A.Q. Khan in his worldview that we have to save this region, not only Pakistan. They came up with a theory. Uh, they said Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, this triangle has to be saved. Otherwise, the West will come in. Or that That's when he thought uh, of helping Iran. That's why he thought of helping Libya. It was money factor also because he gave them a big check. He connected them with his international network. But the zeal behind this was, I am doing a great service for the downtrodden. I am doing a great service for those who have no power. Uh, I am helping those who cannot afford or buy these expensive weapons. I am going to provide security to these Muslim countries or actually North Korea as well, which is not a Muslim country, but some a country which was seen as defying the international order. One man created the nuclear programs of Pakistan, Iran, Libya, as well as giving a nuclear umbrella to Saudi Arabia. His story is proof of what Kelsey Davenport said at the start of this episode. Personalities matter. And if that's the case, there can't be a more compelling example of this than the knowledge that one of Khan's most eager customers was Kim Jong-il, supreme leader of North Korea, now the world's most serious non-proliferation challenge. North Korea is, you know, the horse that left the barn, to use the American proverb, right? I mean, it is it is not a non-proliferation problem anymore. It is a problem of deterrence. Ankit has written the book on the current North Korean nuclear program, Kim Jong-un and the bomb. By the time we're in the 1990s, A.Q. Khan, who's also a bit of a megalomaniac and, uh, and, and does have an interest in sort of freelancing, uh, pursues cooperation with North Korea uh, that he also, you know, frames in terms of Pakistani national interests because uh, to vastly oversimplify the basic exchange that happened between North Korea and Pakistan was uranium enrichment technology for delivery systems. If Pakistan is building nuclear weapons, it needs missiles. Turns out that the North Koreans have a missile known as the Nodong, which is fairly useful from the Pakistani perspective to hold at risk a number of targets in India. And the North Koreans, uh, you know, see this guy, Ikyu Khan, who has expertise with uranium enrichment technology, who can give them access to his P1 gas centrifuges, which appeal to the North Koreans for a variety of reasons. Perhaps one of the most important ones being that uh, in terms of keeping a program covert, 
uh, uranium enrichment facilities uh, are are a lot more tempting uh, than the you know the large reactors and reprocessing facilities that the international community was already aware of by the early 1990s. North Korea's nukes can now strike Europe, North America, and of course anywhere in Asia, and there's nobody that can stop them. We used to talk about North Korea as a proliferation problem when the concern was that they had perhaps, you know, a dozen, perhaps 20 nuclear warheads worth of material that they perhaps hadn't actually manufactured, that they didn't have the sophistication to actually develop a compact enough nuclear device to put on a ballistic missile. I mean, those days are far, far behind us. Uh, I mean, and they have been behind us for more than half a decade now, I would argue. Uh, Today, we're talking about North Korea pursuing Tactical nuclear weapons uh, becoming, uh, you know, the only non-major power country to put multiple warheads on uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles to threaten the United States. Kim Jong-un has tested, you know, uh, albeit not the most impressive, but he has still tested, you know, hypersonic glide vehicles. The North Koreans' ambition uh, really is is in no shortage. And really, we've just seen a tremendous qualitative and quantitative expansion in North Korean capabilities. Um, you know, I think it's actually quite simple for for someone to put together a case that qualitatively the North Koreans are actually the most sophisticated possessor of nuclear weapons outside of the P5. Uh, I mean, I mean, there are things the North Koreans do that that strike me as as more sophisticated than what India, Pakistan, uh, and Israel have done uh, with their um, more limited nuclear forces. Right? North Korea doesn't have more nuclear warheads just yet than India and Pakistan, but they're also on track, perhaps by 2030, by the end of this decade, to be in a place where they will have, you know, well into the three digits worth of nuclear warheads, including tactical nuclear weapons. Coincidence that on the day UN sanctions came into force on trade across this border, the tensions which had been ratcheting up suddenly went off the boil. It is, however, one thing for Kim Jong un to shelve his ambitious plan to attack Guam and quite another to persuade him to halt his entire nuclear program. Whenever you have states investing in capabilities that can be used for both conventional warfighting and nuclear warfighting, you significantly increase the risk that a state believes it's being subject to a nuclear attack and you know tries to act first. You increase the risk of a signal, you know, being perceived as you know, a preventative or preemptive strike and that escalating into a nuclear conflict. I mean, we saw this significantly in the 2017 period between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. I mean, a combination of vague threats and military signaling nearly brought us to the brink of conflict that easily could have spilled over into, into a nuclear conflict. So where are we in 2022? You have the established nuclear powers, US, UK, France, Russia and China. Then the known nuclear powers outside the NPT, Israel, Pakistan, India and North Korea. Then there's the ones that we're not sure about. Libya, with help from AQ Khan, made some progress, but this was wound down as Gaddafi tried to make friends with the West. Iran is getting very close and other possible players are in the mix. Saudi Arabia has shown some interest and stated publicly that it would respond in kind to any weapons development from Iran. Japan is often said to have all the technology it needs to assemble a bomb rapidly if the situation requires. Add to this Taiwan, Turkey, South Korea, Australia, Canada and Germany and suddenly the list doesn't feel very short at all. But for Shas Joshi, the North Korea situation carries the most urgency. 
Absolutely. They've expanded the program. They've expanded fissile material. They've expanded the number and types of missiles. They've tested new missiles. Nothing is stopping, right? They see, you know, not, why would they stop? The sanctions are not enough to, to sort of deter them. And they see rationale in having missiles that can demonstrably, credibly strike not just Tokyo and Seoul, but also Los Angeles and Washington. Because if you can do that, you can ensure that the Americans are not going to try and get in the way of your regional wars, and they're not going to try and topple your regime. But what would an Iranian nuclear weapon mean for the wider world? Uh, I do think that there are important differences between Iran and North Korea in that regard. I mean, particularly to the extent that, you know, North Korea is a country that has shown very little interest in terms of uh, regional or global integration economically. The complexity of its economy, the size of its population, its interactions with its neighbors are completely different uh, than than what Iran um, itself pursues. What I'm more concerned about with Iran is um, that Iran may choose to either become a long-term nuclear hedger, where they will always have the capability and a very short amount of time to assemble a nuclear device if a major conflict does emerge, or that they choose to secretly develop a nuclear uh, deterrent, just like the South Africans did. I think both of those scenarios are concerning for various reasons. Um, and of course, you know, if the Iranians break out, there's going to be a proliferation cascade in the Middle East. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, has been publicly explicit that Saudi Arabia will pursue nuclear weapons if Iran does choose to pursue nuclear weapons itself. The A.Q. Khan story tells us that every action leads to a reaction. Khan was reacting to India's nuclear programme, which had left Pakistan feeling excessively exposed to its main antagonist. But there's a complex reality, not least the growth of civil nuclear power in an age of net zero carbon. What do we make, for example, of Saudi Arabia, under its hyper-aggressive Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, developing both a civil nuclear industry and working with China on ballistic missiles. Saudi Arabia now appears you know, intent on developing its own ballistic missile capabilities. So there is concern about the role that China has played supporting sort of ballistic missile endeavors in Saudi Arabia. There is also concern that Saudi Arabia is going to look into uranium mining, into, I think, down the road, perhaps developing its own enrichment and reprocessing technologies, uh, because Riyadh has been unwilling to forswear access to those technologies and processes in its negotiations for U.S. assistance for its civil nuclear program. So, you know, similar to Iran, I think we could see Saudi Arabia begin to develop the necessary technologies and capability to build a nuclear weapon under the guise of a civil nuclear program. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
what does this mean for the poor old non-proliferation treaty, which doesn't seem to work anymore? Here's Shash. At this stage, the problem is more not that the thing is everyone is mushrooming with nuclear bombs. It's that sense that the established order that is held, just about held, is showing all these cracks. And we just don't know, you know, in 10 or 20 years, where will Turkey be? Where will Saudi Arabia uh, Saudi Arabia be? Where will the, 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 the South Koreans be? Where, of course, you know, a good chunk of the population wants nuclear weapons. Japan is different for obvious reasons. But in South Korea, there's a pretty hawkish and open contingent of people. In Japan, we saw Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister, talk about how Japan should entertain uh, a nuclear sharing option of the sort that NATO has. So, it's just that sort of those, those tectonic plates moving moving on the surface and, and looking a little bit, you know, febrile and, and worrying. That That's the issue, I think. So are we headed for turbulent times? Uh, you know, generally speaking, I would agree with the premise that the next 30 years of nuclear proliferation uh, concern me uh, compared to the last 30 years, right? And the last 30 years had their fair share of, of proliferation failures. You know, India, Pakistan, North Korea all broke out in the last 30 years. I think the answer to that is conventional deterrence, which can still do a lot. Uh, and and I think it actually, in, in you know, in many places that I study closely, including the Korean Peninsula, the Indo-Pacific, uh, conflicts in the Taiwan Strait, conventional capabilities, building up intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, um, developing more integrated planning between U.S. allies, not just between allies and the United States. Um, all of that, I think, can lead to a, a more robust basis with which to deter aggression. Um, but this world where the United States is fundamentally giving up one of the most important tools in its nonproliferation toolkit, which is credible extended deterrence. I, you know, I shouldn't say it's giving it up, but our allies certainly are more concerned than they have been uh, in a long time. That is a world ripe for proliferation in many ways. The United States and its allies really need to go back to the drawing board and recognize that the typical playbook, which has largely consisted of coercion through economic statecraft, sanctions in particular, and diplomatic isolation, is not going to work in every future proliferation scenario. We have to think about what type of positive benefits we offer states you know, not to go down this path. And when we think about states that are pursuing civil nuclear programs, what type of incentives are they given if they pursue more proliferation resistant designs and they're willing to adhere to the highest level of international monitoring and inspections? What are we offering those states? So I think we have to think about incentives. You know, I also think that we need to find a way to continue to keep Russia and China actively engaged in nonproliferation. I think that those are, are options that need to be looked at more closely, that need to be thought about more creatively, and that all of the states that provide nuclear technologies for civil nuclear programs need to be engaged you know, in this enterprise of thinking through you know, what are the conditions for selling nuclear reactors, for assisting states in developing civil nuclear programs, and are those conditions you know, meeting the highest standards of nonproliferation and insisting on those barriers between civil nuclear programs and the bomb. What does the AQ Khan story tell us? 
Can you really limit nuclear risk when one individual can drive so much proliferation? Or is this really a one-off? No one could think. I'll give you one example, uh, which will explain to you the whole dilemma. And one, it, it is in Jal Musharraf, the former military dictator's book. Um, uh, when he became the head of the state in 2001, the, the air chief, chief of Pakistan's air staff, called him and said, um, that look, sir, I think there's a C-130 aircraft which is going to Iran um, and, and there's some problem with it. And Musharraf uh, checked about it. Musharraf said, who's sending it? They said, A.Q. Khan is sending the plane. And General Musharraf asked, he said, connect me to A.Q. Khan. He talked to A.Q. Khan. He said, I've heard there's a C-130 aircraft, a cargo plane with a lot of equipment going to Iran and you are handling it. What is it about? What are you sending to Iran or what are you getting from Iran? And A.Q. Khan said this to the head of the state, Sir, this is too serious a matter for me to share with you. This is confidential. And that's when Musharraf said, okay, there is something seriously wrong. And then Musharraf and his investigators started working on this. That's when he got a clue. And then, of course, the Western intelligence agencies were also following the case. I mean, that's one important lesson because it was a failure of the Pakistani state, whether they were involved in it or not, is another whole debate. That is one. Secondly, misplaced nationalism, I've mentioned the other way. And the third is this feeling of insecurity, which is there, there's no cure for that. I mean, countries which really feel insecure. So the international security order has to take care of this feeling. You feel somebody totally insecure. The purpose is to understand the dynamic and the driver. So A.Q. Khan's driver was Partly, I personally think it, it's at some point money was also a factor. But he was making, trying to make money for his cause of supporting other countries for their security point of view. This explains a larger dilemma. Also, this, another lesson learned, we often think what happens in Bosnia stays in Bosnia or what happens in Iraq or Afghanistan stays there. No, these projects, maybe with good intentions, some of these, which then different radicalization and extremism trends come out of these, which create disorder in a way that people like A.Q. Khan then, then benefit from those or they get genuinely inspired by those. And the net result is insecurity, chaos, fear, threat for all of us. Throughout the A.Q. Khan story, we see countries driven by the fear of their enemies and what they might do, including Saudi Arabia and Iran. Both believe in an existential threat posed by each nation against the other. We tend to assume that this rivalry is a case of regional proxies for global great powers, Iran for the Russians and Chinese, Saudi Arabia for the West. But what if it was the other way round? In the past half century, this rivalry between two of the greatest energy powers on Earth may have been the central issue driving geopolitics. Rather than assume that these countries are puppets of their great power allies, perhaps it is them that are driving us. It's almost as if we've all been engaged in this fight, even when we haven't realised it. Join me next time for Doomsday Watch, The Invisible War. events at the onset not linked become completely interlinked and launch these new dynamics. They change society, they change art and culture and it unleashes 
religion as a dominant factor in politics, in culture, and in militancy in ways that we had not seen before. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content, and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>